Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Well, I am excited uh, to be a part of a church uh, where what we are going to talk about needs to be talked about. Uh, If I had to choose a setting, uh, if there were setting A, where we were trying to get people meaningfully involved in one another's life, and they were standing back to the point that we were trying to get them to love to the point where it hurt, uh, and we were moving them, I think that is less good than if we're in a different situation where our people are already meaningfully involved in the life of others uh, to a point that they're asking the question, are we doing this well? We're, we're helping, but it's, sometimes it feels like uh, our helping is going to a point that it's, it's not producing the desired result. I'm afraid I may be enabling people. In that sense, I feel a little bit like Moses. Uh, when he called for an offering and he got to the point where he said, you have given more than enough, I'm going to ask you to to stop. Uh, And so in in some ways, the fact that we're going to talk about ten keys to ensure that caring is helping uh, is a testimony of the degree to which uh, our church is getting involved in the lives of people who, who most need Christ in our community. Now, Uh, In preparation for this, I was listening to uh, a guy from Philadelphia talk about urban ministry. And and he made a point in a way that resonated with me uh, that I was like, that just makes so much sense. He asked the question, he says, how do you know you're not from Philadelphia? And his answer was, you order a Philly cheesesteak. If you're from Philadelphia, you just order a cheesesteak. If you're not from Philadelphia, you order a Philly cheesesteak because it's part of the experience of being there. He said the same thing is true with urban ministry. If you are doing urban ministry, you don't call it urban ministry, you just call it ministry. And so there's a sense in which we would approach this subject and we go, ah, this, this is kind of those principles for the hope hut emphasis of the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, and the high school dropout. If I do my job well, Uh, then what we will see is that, no, this applies to all of our relationships. We're all people in need of help, helping people in need of help. This is, we are all in that position of being needy. And so if we address this subject well, it's going to apply to our small groups, our day-to-day relationships, everybody that we're interacting with. Now, so our, our topic is 10 keys to ensure that caring is helping. And here's the premise. If we are caring wisely for people, then three things ought to happen. Uh, The person who's being cared for should be blessed. Uh, The love of Christ should be made more tangible. And me, my own faith, the one who's giving care, it should grow and expand. But there's times when we care in a way uh, that is unwise. Uh, And when we care in a way that's unwise, there's kind of 
three reverse things that has happened. The person receiving care is enabled. The love of Christ is misrepresented in some way. And then as the caregiver, I become exhausted and cynical because I begin to realize I can't keep this up. And so what we want to do is I want to offer you ten principles for wise caregiving. Now I admit up front, principles are always neater than the life context in which uh, we implement them. There will be points where we have lots of what if questions and what does this look like and we have to contextualize it. But I think what principles do is they give us some anchor points and some mindsets to where when we begin to reach our limits, uh, we don't feel guilty or like we failed when we come up to those points and say, wait a second, it would be leaving wisdom for me to go further than where we're at. And so let's begin to jump into those. Uh, the first of those principles is that we avoid the rescuer mentality. When you begin to bear the weight of responsibility for someone else's life, unwise decisions always follow. Um, it, our role is to come alongside of people. Uh, and I think sometimes we look at Galatians 6, 1 through 4, and we forget that verse 5 followed right after that. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 4 is where you have those ideas of we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But as Paul is concluding that, and he said, and each one should carry his own load. Uh, the point where this became most clear to me, when I was in grad school, uh, I worked at a boys and girls club. And part of my role there uh, was kind of the athletic director for the club. Uh, and, and my goal was not to take uh, eight and ten-year-olds and make them star hockey players. Uh, my goal was to teach them to value a team sport concept, to begin to enjoy it, to see that it's something that they could excel at. So when they hit middle school and high school, they had the opportunity to be on a team with a coach who had a vested interest in them completing at least their high school education. And I saw that, and I got that, and I enjoyed coaching. I enjoyed rallying kids. But there was something that I noticed when I understood the vision of what I was doing that very quickly began to happen. I began to want kids to be on this team more than they wanted to be on the team. And it flipped things in our relationship that just were not healthy to be flipped. And if we're a caregiving people, it is so easy to fall into the trap to where I want something for someone more than they want it for themselves. And what it looked like with the kids on the hockey team is those who I saw they had potential, not because we were going to win some tournament, but because this really could be their key to stick through high school. I would bend the rules for them. I would, I would do things for them that they should have been asked to sit out, but I didn't want to sit them out because that might give them a, a bad taste towards the team. And I didn't realize it. But what I was teaching the kids was, if you have talent, the rules don't apply to you. And, and it just, it, it caught me and I could see it. And I'm like, that is so not who I am. Uh, I mean, I am the type A coach rule follower but what happened was I engaged that rescuer mentality where I wanted this for them more than they wanted it for themselves, and it changed the dynamic of our relationship. 
Second principle, uh, do not replace the legal system. If something illegal happens, either to or by the person you are helping, your first responsibility is to report to the legal authorities. And this is one that as soon as you start to get to know somebody, and they're not an activity, but they're a person, they have a face, they have a name, they have a story, we lose sight of this. One of the places as a counselor where I see this most often is in domestic violence. So let me ask you a question. What do you call a crime that happens in your house and is committed by somebody you know? What do you call that? A crime. That's what you call that. It doesn't go by any other name because the location is personal and you have a relationship with the person who did it. I think one of the things where uh, if we look through Scripture and uh, the chapter and verse demarcations don't always serve us well in our study of Scripture. And I think there's a place where this is particularly true that applies to what we're talking about. It's that transition between the end of Romans 12 and the beginning of Romans 13. You know, the end of Romans 12 is a classic guilt passage. It's one of those that if any of us read it, we just feel awful. Because it's when people do something bad to you, you need to return evil for good and overcome evil with good. And you need to be so nice that you're heaping burning coals on their head that we are totally leaving room for the vengeance of God. We're not doing that ourselves. And we read that chapter and we shut our Bible and we say, God, help me because there's all these people doing really bad things and I'm mad at them and I want to tell them all. And we, just, and we come back the next day and we read Romans 13. And we've totally forgotten about Romans 12. And it says that God has given uh, the legal authorities the sword for a reason, that they are His instruments for justice around us. And on, on the day before when we were in Romans 12, if anybody wrongs us in any way, we just feel like we're somehow supposed to sweep that under the rug with grace. And then we read Romans 13 and we think we're supposed to think nice thoughts when the police officer gives us a ticket for not coming to a full and complete stop at the stop sign. With no connection. But there is a connection. That we do not take vengeance ourselves, but we leave room for the vengeance of God. And one of the ways that He does that is through the legal authorities. And we don't do that ourselves, but we very well may need to report those things. And if you wait, if you're in a caring relationship with somebody where legal matters are coming into play, and if you wait until the moment, it will feel too personal. It will feel like you're upset. It will feel like you're taking revenge. You will have every reason not to do that. And so my suggestion to you is to resolve now that that is what you will do in obedience to Romans 13, instead of trying to decide later based upon whatever unique factors that you don't think you'll ever actually be able to do that with a clean conscience until it's getting so bad that you're going to be arrested if you don't. Um, principle three. Uh, know your role within the church. You know, when we take a passage like 1 Corinthians 9.22 where it says we're to be all things to all people, what we need to understand is that the you in that passage is a good southern y'all. Uh, it is a plural you. 
Uh, it is the body of Christ uh, as a whole. Uh, when we begin to try to do everything that the body of Christ as a whole should do ourselves, uh, then the only results are burnout. And then when we get in over our head trying to do more than we can do, and then we fall apart because we can't do it anymore, the people that we were trying to help get hurt because they grew dependent upon our overactivity uh, in a way that just was not sustainable. Principle four. Never do what someone else can or should do for themselves. Uh, a telltale sign that assistance is becoming enablement is when we do for others what they could do for themselves. Um, I think this is a classic parenting principle. It is one of those things that when our kids were at that age where we need to get shoes on before we could go somewhere, I battled it every time we left the house. I can tie that shoe in 12 seconds. They can tie that shoe in 12 minutes. Um, it, is, it is so much easier for me to tie that shoe for you, but I will be tying it for the rest of my life. We need to do the bunny ear, and he wraps around, and he goes in the hole. and he, it, we, we have to do that. But it's not just that aspect. Think about it this way. You're helping somebody who they're in a position that they need a job. And they, they don't know how to go about finding a job. And you're pretty good at that. And you can go online and you can fill out the applications. You can make a resume for them. What has to happen next? They have to live up to the kind of resume that we can write. And all of a sudden, they show up and they can't live up to what was done. And so even if it's you taking a tablet or a laptop over and they begin to use that to fill out the online application, the process of them doing that with you, as painfully slow as it is, I'm an efficiency addict and this hurts me, um, but the process of them just going through that is part of the skills training for them to be able to show up and live up to um, the position that we've helped them find and get into. And so we don't want to do anything for them that they can and should do for themselves. Uh, which really leads into the fifth point. Uh, create a halfway step. Uh, when, when their need does require us to uh, do something or give money, then we want to create wise halfway steps that helps this person become a good steward of the assistance that we're providing. And so here's the way that I would phrase the question. What would my friend have to begin to do in order for my kindness not to evaporate in life stress? You know, that, that if I just do this for them and I bail them out, what is it that they've got to do that they have the character and the skill that they can be a steward of the opportunity that is coming. Um, and so, um, you know, the different kinds of situations that you will find, uh, this is where uh, it requires some creativity because the type of ministry that you're in, but what is a, a smaller commitment? Uh, there's a, a family that my uh, wife and I 
uh, are involved with right now. And, and a couple of different things that that looks like. One is, um, you know, when it comes to finding a job, uh, bringing them a phone book. We want you to identify uh, 10 different places uh, that you think would be a good fit. Uh, and then we will help you contact those and take that next step. Or helping them think through that at this point, uh, they, in the course of several moves, they don't have a social security card. A and beginning to get them the application, but no, you need to fill this out. And there is a, a $40 fee attached to that. At least 20 of those dollars you need to pay for, we'll match that. But to them and their household income, $20 is like a 401k. But what they need to understand is that this is an investment towards being able to live a sustainable life. And if we just get them those tools without building the kind of character and skills to utilize that, then our kindness is just going to evaporate and they're going to become dependent upon us in a way that they're not learning to become self-supporting. And so in whatever we can do, creating those kinds of halfway steps. Um, principle six, model a healthy life and relationship. Um, and, and I use the word healthy in an awkward way in this sentence, but, but hear what I mean here. Making exceptions to healthy is what gets most people in a crisis. Modeling how to deal with difficult situations without violating the basic principles of healthy is often as important as any of the logistical and financial assistance that you provide. This is what it means to incarnate wisdom in a hard situation. I am not going to step outside of what is healthy as I help you walk through this difficult situation. One minor example of what that looks like. Uh, and none of the interns really like this, but I think all of them appreciate it. When it comes to the meetings that I do with the counseling intern teams, almost all of those happen at 6.30 in the morning on a weekday. Uh, and, and I tell them up front, I appreciate this. And part of the reason is, is that we could not catalyze and facilitate the amount of ministry that would go on through a counseling ministry if I did this in the evenings because it would take away all of the time that I have for my family. And if we're going to do this, then it's going to need to be at a time that you're available and I'm available, and we're going to put it at this time because it's what allows me to continue to meet uh, the First Timothy 3 criteria of being an elder who manages my own family well and devotes that time to it. And so it does mean at times when people ask us for help, we will say no out of a commitment to our family because they need to hear that that commitment to family is part of healthy. And us modeling what that looks like is for them to go, wait a second. If I'm going to get somewhere that is healthy and sustainable in life, I'm going to have to make hard decisions for those around me. And this is part of what that sounds like. Now, um, know your physical, emotional, and financial limits. Uh, creating a second crisis does not help the first one. Um, when I go beyond what I am capable of doing, 
to help you and my life goes so far into the margin that I'm living in code red trying to get you out of your code red, that doesn't help anybody. Um, that's why one of the things that's encouraging to me, if you look at a passage like Deuteronomy 16, 17, I mean, this is like full-on Old Testament before God found grace. I'm kidding about that. Same God, Old Testament, New Testament. But where the law was the thickest and the heaviest. What it says when it speaks to generosity is that we are to give as we are able. Um, and so the the point that I would make here is that God's will fits in God's provision. And that's one of those things that if we are going to manage our own emotions and our own conscience well, we have to remember that God's will fits within God's provision. Here's one of the places where I battle that most. Uh, I am one of those type A kind of addicted to achievement people. I can come up with 200 to 250 hours worth of good stuff to do on any given week before I waste any time sinning. I got at least 200 hours worth of good stuff that I think God would love it if this was done. I can rest in the fact that at least 32 hours of that is outside the will of God. Not because it's bad, but because He's fair. And God's will fits within God's provision. And I can accept whatever stewarding 168-hour week, seven 24-hour days accomplishes as something that God will look at and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because He is fair. And His will will fit with what He provides. Time, energy, resources across the board. And so... I honor God when I live within my limits. I dishonor saying, God, I have to do more than you have given me the capacity to do in order to do what you've called me to do. I begin, whether I say it or not, and probably at first I won't say it, but with time as I start to get towards burnout, I will. I will begin to view Him as an unfair taskmaster who is just demanding more than I can do. I begin to view him in the Exodus narrative as the one who says more bricks and I'm not even making the straw. God, how can I do it? You're more like Pharaoh than you are Jehovah. And, and I miss the fact because I violated the ideas uh, that he is a loving father that we see in uh, that seventh principle there. Because again, hear this. When I think of who I am, I am God's son, not His employee. God does not look at me as an employee wanting to know how He can get the greatest return on His investment in me. Trying to get the greatest profit margin He can. Because that's just a bad deal when I came at the cost of the blood of Christ. He looks at me as a father looks at his child. And whatever those abilities are that he put inside of me, and he begins to see me do those, there's this, this sense of joy that, yes, my child is doing what I created them to do. And that sense of delight that comes, that I totally lose that relationship with him when I begin to violate principle seven. Principle eight, never allow team splitting 
to occur. Uh, and this is probably one of the more subtle things that can begin to happen because it most often comes out in the form of a compliment. There's multiple people around somebody. And again, if we're, if we're helping in a church context where we are helping as a body and not just as one person trying to be all of the body of Christ, it means we should be helping in a team concept most of the time. And, and what will happen is the person that we're helping will compliment us as an underhanded insult or critique of other people. I know these other people mean well, but they just don't understand me. They don't get me. They won't go the extra mile like you do. And I begin to use a downplay of these folks. They're not doing enough. They don't understand it. In a compliment of you to try to get you to do more. And whether it is intentional or not, I would dare say the vast majority of manipulation is not intentional. I don't say this to be insulting, uh, but what I have found is the vast majority of manipulative people, if I gave a lecture on how to manipulate and then gave them a test on that subject, they couldn't pass it. it the vast majority of manipulation is unintentional. And it takes the form of the questions we ask and the way we define words. And in the way that we define that, it begins to cast things in a way that they are to my benefit and to somebody else's detriment. And so that moment of where they're asking a question, where they're complimenting, they're building you up and putting that person down, those are the kinds of moments where we begin to go, wait a second, they're beginning to putting more of this on me. All of a sudden, I'm not part of the body of Christ that's helping in a team concept. This has come back on me because nobody else in the body of Christ is doing what they're supposed to. Wait a second, that's the moment where it happened. And so I think at those moments, when we take the opportunity, and it can be a soft word of rebuke, but it needs to be there to say, the people who are helping are doing so uh, out of a genuine love for Christ and a care for you. Um, if you don't feel like they understand your situation, can we go to them? Can we have that conversation? And to debunk, to defuse any sense of team splitting that would occur, because that's where an intense amount of weight is going to begin to come on you, and it's going to isolate you from the body of Christ in your efforts to help. Principle 9. Uh, do not allow yourself to be motivated um, or manipulated by guilt. Uh, guilt is motivational junk food. It gives short boost of energy with no long-term nutritional value, and so we just wind up crashing and fatiguing afterwards. And here is, if I can give a picture using my hands, as if I haven't talked with my hands enough already, um, but if I could give a picture of what goes on in many of these situations, somebody asks us for help, and we do a bit of emotional math to figure out whether we're going to say yes or no. And this is what it looks like. If the guilt of saying no is greater than the inconvenience of saying yes, we say yes. Doesn't matter if it's healthy, doesn't matter if it's us living in a balanced life. If the guilt of saying no 
I can't do that or I shouldn't do that because I wouldn't be able to care for my own kids or my own family well or this kind of thing. If the guilt of saying no is greater than the inconvenience of saying yes, we will say yes until, and we got this, until the anger of being taken advantage of becomes greater than the guilt of saying no, and then the entire conversation is had up here. The entire conversation is had at the level, I am tired of you asking more than I can give, and we just kind of let them have it. And after that, one of two things happen. Either we say, look, this relationship is toxic, I can't take it, I can't do it, and we completely abandon the situation. Or we feel really bad for having lost our cool, and the guilt becomes greater than the anger because of the way that conversation was had. And it just pins us in the conversation longer because we go, when I try to talk about this, the, the, the guilt is so bad, it's not worth the inconvenience, I'll just keep doing it. And that's where we have to be willing in these other areas to have those conversations, knowing our limits, and being able to say that there are certain things that I need to do to have... Uh, a healthy and sustainable life and to care for my family well. And I do want to help you. Uh, but us saying no, it can't be rooted in that kind of emotional math or the conversation will only be had up here uh, in a nasty, aggressive way that will cause us to push away or to fall back deeper into a guilt trap. And so, um, final principle if you're not sure, ask your ministry support person. Um, whoever that is. If it's a, a point person over your ministry team, if it's the uh, elder that's over your small group, um, you know, whoever that point person is for your ministry team, if you're not sure what to do, ask questions. Uh, helping never means having all the answers or even knowing the next question to ask. Uh, this is a big part of what it means to serve in the context of the body of Christ. If we're not sure, ask more questions. Honestly, that is the best piece of counseling advice I got in all my years of seminary training. If you don't know what to say, ask more questions. Uh, as opposed to just making a statement or doing something, if you're not sure what to say, ask more questions. Because at that moment, what you're doing is you're modeling the kind of humility that says, I'm not your rescuer. I am one person who's coming alongside of you, and at least in this area, we've reached my limits. Let's reach out to somebody else. Let me show you what it is like to healthily engage a problem that you're not sure of. Instead of just doing something because I don't know what to do, I'm going to ask. And again, what we are doing is we are modeling the kind of healthy, sustainable life uh, that we want to invite them into. And it is the most powerful lesson that we will ever be able to give. I'll parallel it this way. Uh, whenever I have the opportunity to teach on parenting, uh, one of the questions that I ask in order to make a point uh, is almost always this. What is the most powerful discipleship tool I have in the life of my two boys? And if you'll allow me to go heretical for just a moment, I don't even think it's my Bible. I don't think it's prayer. 
I think the most powerful discipleship tool I have in the life of my boys are my failings. Those moments when I will model for them what it is like to come to Scripture for answers that I don't have. When I model for them the way that repentance and praying to God and reaching out to other people, that is the moment where everything that I would teach them in other situations becomes real. And so the same thing would be true here. What is the most powerful tool that you have in those in the lives of those that you are helping in this way? It's probably going to be your shortcomings. Those moments where you model what it is like to engage those things in the very place where they are, where they feel overwhelmed and they're not sure what to do and they can see you come to that point and you do it, that's where you get to incarnate everything that you've been teaching and it's also the biggest survival tool that you have because it's what gets you off of an island of care connected back to the continent of God's grace and God's people so that you are being fed and cared for as you're caring for others. Uh, and so with those things being said, what I'd like to do uh, is to pray for us, uh, just that we would implement these well, uh, and then we'll take some time for questions at the end. Lord, we come to you. And uh, Lord, I hope, I, I hope that what we feel is relief. Um, that you don't ask more from us, that you are fair uh, that we can trust you in the process of caring for those who are in uh, significant need. Uh, I pray that you'll take the things that we've discussed at the moments when they're needed, you'll call them to mind uh, in a way that we can model what it is to rely upon you uh, as we care for those that we're wanting to invite into relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen.